<laughs> that was deeply aggressive. That was the sharpest clap I've it ever done. A, it was a deeply aggressive clap, and I don't appreciate it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode something or other of the Atkins Labcast. Of the Atkins Labcast, which is brought out every week without fail. Ah. <laughs> we missed a week. How do we miss a week? Because our lives are falling apart like the world. Our lives aren't falling apart like the world. <laughs> <laughs> the world is falling apart. Well, the world, yeah, well it's, yes. It's, yes. It's in a little bit of a speed bump. That's a big fucking speed bump. We're, we're still... Yes, and we've lost red, green, blue today. R- Ruth Bader Ginsburg. No, that was yesterday. Yesterday. Isn't yes. that awful? Yeah. Really. And I noticed everyone posting RGB rather than RBG. <laughs> and <laughs> that's your moment of colour. You need to talk <laughs> You talk into the microphone. I'm laughing. Oh. I don't have to laugh into the microphone. The, uh, the fucking machine says I don't have to. Oh, okay. Says it heard me laughing, even though I wasn't. We're not laughing that. because we're deeply saddened that. Oh, Ruth it's, it's a it's a it's a dumpster fire with a car crash it's, it's and a, a clusterfuck on the side. Like it's just it's just it's a total shit show. It's it's the worst. I mean, it, it could not be any worse. And I said that, which means it'll be worse now. Now something even worse will happen. So now there's going to be bloody. You know what's going to happen? Little little Rocket Man is on a mission. <laughs> what are we talking about? <laughs> North Korea. He's going to pick a fight with North Korea to distract us all. Oh, okay. He's going to pick a fight, yes. With King Kim Jong. That's right. We haven't we haven't had any nuclear explosions yet. So we haven't hit peak end of world. That's a good point. That's a good point. So let us thank our lucky stars. Yeah, we should feel really have... grateful. It's all about gratitude, Paul. Did you know that? It's stay on hey, Facebook for long ha- enough, they'll tell you. How about the Victorian COVID numbers? 14 Go Vicks. Thank you, Victorians. We love you all. You glorious bastards. Yes. You're glorious. They are glorious. Thank you for staying home and doing nothing and suffering for all of Australia. Thank you. We're very proud of you and we love you and we Thank will you. never kick a Vic. We will always... Hug a Vic. Lick a Vic. Lick a... <laughs> that goes against the fucking COVID rules, you dickhead. You're right. That's you're the right. exact thing we should not be. There will be no licking of Vicks. Okay. Now... Um, now, the, our guest Look this at you week, getting back on. I know. Topic. Our guest this week was a Victorian. Was a Victorian. Back in the olden but days he's before he's a Canadian. A he's a Canadian, a Torontonian. <laughs> is that right? A, a Torontonian? Torontonian? Sure. Yes. We'll David that. Anthony Williams is an absolute uh, god. Cattiest straight man you've ever met. <laughs> <laughs> he's an absolute god. We had such a fabulous time hanging out with him in Toronto a few years ago. Do you know what? The entire time all I could think about. Was that key lime pie that I had at that restaurant he took us to? That's right. I took us to and I, you two were jammed into that little seat and I was sitting there listening to you go, oh, 54 to 32. And I was just like, shut the fuck up. I'm eating heaven right here, <laughs> well, right now. I you noticed the talking. Key lime pie. I discovered key lime pie on that trip. And let me tell you, that put on many, many, many kilos upon my body. Yes. David's, um, David's been in Toronto for a while shooting weddings and portraits and – having a grand old time up there, but we do miss him desperately. We do wish he would come back to our fair shores. He's a bit of an oracle, you know. An oracle, an oracle. Yeah, like you kind of go, well, what about this? And he goes. Do you mean he bought TikTok? No. Oh, look at you. Up with the times. Made a relevant tech joke. Hells to the yes, Dad. Thank you. Look at that. Thank you. Wow. No, come t- on. Have da- you got a TikTok account yet? No. no. Tell, us about, tell us about David being an oracle. 
Oh, just, you know, I feel like he has got so much experience and knowledge and that you can just kind of throw things at him and he'll, he'll ha- he has the truth. You know, like he has mm. a, a he thinks really about, good... He yeah. thinks about it. Thinks yeah, it. and a lot of the stuff that, you know, I've sort of felt about awards and weddings and stuff, he's, he's got very similar views to me on a, a lot of that stuff. Um, he's probably infinitely more charitable than I am. Um, let's face it. <laughs> Most not, of us not are. Not a high bar to reach, but um, <laughs> I like. I really loved some of the stuff he said about weddings and why weddings are important and what they're really about. And I just there was I I want I want so many young wedding photographers to listen to that stuff. I just feel like it's the stuff that they need to hear and they need to know. So is this is that true. anti barefoot and bearded wedding sack or something like that? You know, like no, no, no. I mean, no, wed- I mean, weddings are a, a big, big barefoot- thing. But David's point was that weddings are all about it's about the family, and you've got to make sure the yeah, photography I mean, represents it's just it. A di- you know, it's a different perspective, right? right. And and like it, <laughs> I think you know, I think he has a very a very rosy picture and a very a very potentially, you know, I think he sees the best part of family. Yeah. And if you're somebody who has not necessarily come from great family, well, guess what? It's not fucking about family. You know, I mean, that's part oh, that's of, a good point. That's part of and, the whole. And we did talk about that in the interview that he he had a great growing up and yeah, and so and and so I think that there's an aspect of that that is just who he is that he sees that stuff around family and everything else. Whereas I look at our wedding, and as much as I loved our wedding, and there were things that were, were great fun and all the rest of it. There were great gobs of oh fucking get me. It out was of hard. Here. Oh yakka. lord, I would not do that again in a. All those heartbeat. all those eyeballs on us, bare minimum. Yeah, but also a whole a whole bunch of people we didn't know that well that we felt like we had to invite, and then you know our complicated family issues around the whole thing. Like it was just a fucking mess. So, like, and they had bridesmaids sleeping with. Oh, one of Oh, let's not go there. So <laughs> you know, there's a the there's a lot of table. there's a lot of stuff in there, and I I don't think you can just go. All weddings are this. They're not. No, they're not all no, terrible. No. Like like some people point, think, think and they're not all your, wonderful either. David's point is about having your radar up and yeah, and telling a story. The, the the hard weddings, I imagine, as someone who's never shot a wedding, and every time I go to a wedding, I go, "Why the fuck am I at this wedding?" Um, are the ones where swap wedding there with is any social gathering? Yeah, okay, fair enough. But <laughs> where there there are complicated relationships in there, and you know, if you're going to unbiasedly tell a story. There's an aspect of that it, that that journalism sort of documentary style thing around weddings is kind of like yeah, maybe you know there's parts of it that nobody wants that part of the wedding told that story that the part of the story like you know where people are making fools of themselves in not a fun way or where they're making bitchy comments or where they've you know like I've been at weddings where. You know, people have made terrible speeches that have hurt many people in the room and, you know, so they're not all bloody peaches and cream and love, love, love and all that shit. Yeah. I mean, that might be just what he sees, which is why he's fucking perfect as a wedding photographer because he yeah. sees he, he's like a, a love-seeking missile and he's like, <laughs> oh, I see some love over there, I must photograph it. And I'm the opposite. I'm like, oh, I see some dysfunction over there. Look at that shit. Look at it flying around the room. So, I don't know, I think it's perspective, right? Yeah, correct. Well, let's let these lovely listeners go and have a listen to da da David and enjoy the um the chat. And then after that, guys, go and look up a recipe for key lime pie. 
pie. That is you key. know what? As the in Americans. Key, as in a key that you put in the door, as in the like, oh, as in uh, the island. Oh, it's key. the island, isn't it? Because it's or islandy. It the, it's got coconut and lime and shit. Yeah, so like Key West, Key Lago. Yeah, feel like Aruba, it's, it's got to be Jamaica. one of those. Ooh, I but I tell, oh my it. Christ, on a cracker, people! Bahama, if you could see the head oh, shake my husband <laughs> just did, let me tell you, not one of you would have a heart on ever again. We're on the line today with uh, David Anthony Williams. I'm so glad to, uh, to to catch up with you. I was thinking about this uh, back in the beginning, just because I've got such an interest personally in uh, in art and how it influences photography and how photography's influenced art. And um, it just popped into my feed in in uh, Facebook and I'm, I'd like to encourage you to put these videos wider than Facebook, perhaps in YouTube where you're discussing art and photography and how it's worked for you. So we're going to talk about that uh, this afternoon, this evening, this morning, whatever the time difference is. We'll come across yeah, great. that. I want to yeah, hear a little bit about where you are and what you're at and how's, how's the COVID world going for you. But I thought I'd start off with the with the – the concept that you and I both share something pretty pretty big in common and that we both have had fabulous parents who've brought us and inspired us into the industry. Do you want to tell me a little bit about your growing up and your life? Because I, I honestly, I don't know anyone who's got better family photographs or photographs of yourself as a, as a, as a young person than you do. Uh, incredibly inspirational stuff that every family would like of their, of their kids. Tell me about your, your growing up in photography. Right. Well, Dad was born in in Queensland uh, in 1913, and he he started work in a studio called H.B. Green and Sons uh, in 1927. And they were working with flash powder and glass plates. And indeed, one of the jobs that he had was actually mixing the the flash powder, which was pretty interesting. His um, boss actually blew himself up with flash powder, (laughs) lost a finger and so forth during a particular shoot. And there were some wonderful anecdotes about that. Um, basically, if you imagine that Dad was the the flash holder, you know, I mean, it's a, a common thing nowadays with off-camera flash and so forth. You have a monopod and you have a flash on the end of it and, you know, it's fired wirelessly and so forth. Well, in those days, the exposures were were reasonably slow enough so that you could simply activate it by a little switch to fire off the flash powder. So his boss had set up the main camera with, you know, one tray of flash powder beside him and dad would be somewhere else and fire off the other one during the exposure. And there were a couple of great stories about that. And one that I'll share with you was that they used to, when things were tough, which was of course during the depression, most things were tough. Um, when the business was a bit off, they'd go to the Trocadero in town. And the Trocadero was a nightclub that was downstairs. So you'd walk down the stairs to a landing and then down into the the audience or the bar area. And it was well known as a place where couples on the make would hang out. In other words, people who were cheating on their wives and vice versa. So what they used to do was to whiz down there, set the camera up on the, the landing, Dad had run down into the audience, you know, some against a wall or something like that, and they'd go pop, pop, you know, photograph the audience on a big six and a half, eight and a half glass plate yep. and run out again. And then in the studio, Dad would have to 
pick out all the individual couples in the audience and make like six by fours of them. Oh, right. And they'd put them in the shop window <laughs> <laughs> and, and sell them all before the shop opened on Monday morning. And uh, one year they set fire to the place because it was all uh, dolled up for Christmas and they set fire to the streamers. So <laughs> that was a bit of a disaster. But Dad basically went from there to um, to the Army during World War Two, and he was working as a radiographer uh, or as an assistant to a doctor as a radiographer um, on this troop train that used to go up and down the coast of Queensland. And the... the um, Doctor thought that he had a lot of aptitude and recommended him for the Air Force, and that's how he, he ended up in the Air Force. And my dear old dad, who never passed school, past grade third, or past the age of thirteen, yeah. um, ended up coming top of his class out of you know 120 guys, oh, wow. including Rhodes Scholars and so forth. And he um, he ended up uh, teaching aerial reconnaissance wow. uh, during the war, and. Um, it's interesting because I did an interview with Dad um, many years ago, and uh, I said to him, "We should really do a, do an, another tape about you uh, during the war years." I said, "How would it start?" And he said, "Funny you should mention that." He said, "In 1938, I went to a party, and there was a clairvoyant there, and..." What people today don't realise is that clairvoyants at that time were illegal because after World War One, a lot of chicanery went on with clairvoyants yeah. and people trying to contact their boys that had been killed over in France and all the rest of it and in Palestine and so forth. And um, so they were banned. And anyway, he said there was a clairvoyant at this party and he, he said, Dad said, he's what you would call a, a highly strung sort of chap. And he was just sitting on the edge of the bed there. And he didn't have to hold your hand or anything. He just looked at you and spoke. And he said, you'll be in a war. Well, that was pretty easy because it was 1938. He said, you'll be in something to do with mapping. You'll see the enemy, but you'll never fight the enemy. Mm. And then went on to say, you know, you'll be married twice and, you know, have two kids, a son and a daughter, and you'll live to a ripe old age. How was that? And went through this whole series of other things. And Dad said, all of it came true. And he said, I never actually worried about my life from then on. <laughs> wow. But but he, um, he ended up after the war uh, starting off information services for Kodak in Sydney. Right. And um, then went on to become professional markets manager for Kodak Australasia. And as part of that job, sort of was one of the, the, the many people who presided over the construction of Kodak Coburg, uh, the industrial plant there, yeah. and uh, was also still around when it was closed. Wow. So there was an interesting, uh, an interesting cycle of photographic life. But... There were a couple of parallels which I think might might be of interest to listeners, which was that I remember saying to Dad at one point, you know, complaining to him about digital, only from the point of view, I said, people are doing the most stupid shit with it, Dad. You know, they really are. They're just, you know, doing horrible pictures just because it's digital. And he said, they did exactly the same thing with the introduction of commercially available colour negative film yeah, in yeah. 1960. Yeah. He said, I was there. I introduced it <laughs> yeah. into Australia. And a matter of fact, one of the pictures, and this is a very long-winded way of getting back to it, but one of the pictures that you, you, 
you refer to is actually done of me in dad's car on the very first roll of color negative film in australia well the one first one that came out of coburg yeah wow yeah how cool well one of the some of the roles that came out from uh, eastman kodak and um yeah so uh we were uh, tested on so to speak <laughs> but he was saying that at that time the iap as which is now called the aipp yep. was firmly divided into two camps he said he said one group was steadfastly saying nothing will ever replace a hand colored sepia photograph that's real <laughs> photography and the other camp was uh, basically photographing anything that moved providing it had lots of color in it yeah 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 so it's funny how we go through these cycles you know well that that eastman was <clears throat> complained about by the new york times when he introduced the box brownie that there were the snappers all over new york it's out of control you know so yeah ridiculous oh yeah and here's here's a dig you know for the press for the for the uh, the scribblers out there which is you know journalist community is it impossible for you to write about any photographer without using the term snapper at some point <laughs> you know you ambulance chasers you know like for goodness sake oh yeah so then yes, so then uh, he he was uh he was involved with that side of it so he wasn't technically a, a portrait photographer Oh, he certainly was, and he was very, very good. And but basically, his career ended the time that he he joined with Kodak. He, being a depression era survivor, he just felt that it was too dodgy, too risky to try and, you know, make a living out of it. But he's very, very good at what he did. And one of the things that he passed on to me, a gift that he passed on to me, which I didn't realise at the time. I mean, I was basically fifteen or sixteen, aimless, stupid. Um, I even had the haircut to prove it and not doing very well in school. And the only thing that, that remotely looked like it might suit me was becoming a potter because I'd shown a lot of skill with wheel throwing and so forth. And anyway, I ended up working for Kodak myself after working at a camera store for a while. And dad basically got me uh, interested in, instead of buying a 35 millimeter camera, he got me interested in a twin lens reflex. Right. And started me off on that. So my first experience is square. He then, you know, I said, well, who uses these cameras, Dad? I mean, you know, these seem really old-fashioned. You know, I want something fancy like one of them Nikons, you know, or Canons. For the American viewers, it's called Nikon, not Nikon. (laughs) Yeah, that's why the Japanese say Nikon. Anyway, (laughs) nobody says Canon, do they? Be careful, you might get invaded. You're very close to the edge of the... (laughs) Oh, my American friends know me well. Um, the uh, anyway, the uh, the point was that Dad loved Richard Avedon's work, yeah. and introduced me to Richard Avedon's work from a very very early age. And and at the time, he'd be showing me these magnificent sort of pictures full of incredible energy and verve and life and all the rest of it. And in his own way, he'd be basically trying to say to me, well, this shit's cool, you know, like, uh, yeah, yeah. that's all shot on square cameras, you know, so like, <laughs> well, mostly shot on square cameras. And um, so, you know, it's funny how fast forward, you know, probably 45 years, and I'm still now shooting square format, black and white pictures with as much sort of energy as I can put into them. Yeah, now, but you're, you're shooting on a Fuji system now, aren't you? That's correct, yeah. 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 I'm a Fuji one of the Fuji X photographers in Canada. Um and um I love them. Um I use the Fuji X Pro two, 
And I use that um, basically because one of the cameras that I always admired and, and wanted to use but never could afford one was a Contax. Um, oh, yes. Contax Rangefinder. Yeah. And to me, this Fuji X-Pro2, it's the camera that Leica should have built. I th- um, I've heard that before. I've heard others say the same thing. Yeah. I mean, you know, they sort of steadfastly keep on making the lovely machines that they do, you know, which um, which unfortunately I think are still destined to be bought by um, by dentists. <laughs> I was going to say but dentists. Anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the challenge is, is that they don't have the, the, the volume to get the sensor right um, and that electronics in it which fuji were nailing back in the fuji frontier days their interpretation of color was exceptional from the beginning yeah well i mean um and there's a i think a good story that's worthwhile chatting about back there which is that um how did i get involved with fuji well basically uh it starts off with kodak and and i was asked back in 1998 um, by uh, Rose Sharman, who was in with Kodak, and Peter Coughlin, oh, yeah. and so forth, if I'd be involved in the portrait photography promotion, which was an absolutely amazing project to be involved in, and I will be eternally grateful to those lovely people my entire life for what they did for me. Did for me. And I almost get a bit emotional thinking about it. Because, Actually, David, I, I mm. do as well, um, from mm. a distance, because what you did at that time was unbelievable and you know i was scouring the internet to find out where that gallery is of of the work you created then uh it doesn't seem to be easily available yeah i should i should put it back up on the on the website or something like that but um you know it was just it was just a wonderful project because and again to fill out the uh the people who were listening Kodak had always in sorry Kodak in australia had always used just the promotional material from um from America, from Eastman Kodak. And this particular time, they decided to use the uh, artwork and writing from Eastman, but to actually use local content in the photographs. And um, basically, Rose and uh, Peter approached me and said, well, what would you like to do? Oh, and I I should mention another name there, Mel Forbes. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the Three Musketeers, fabulous people. Anyway, um, they basically said, what would you like to do? And one of the things that I said was, I think you should give the each of the four films an identity. And that identity, uh, my suggestion would be that we make a portrait, which is in the style of, of what I call masterworks, which are photographs in homage to the old masters. And what there will be within that is a photographic element. So one of the pictures was Richard Bennett in armour, um, painted after the uh, Anthony Van Dyke's Earl of Arundel holding one of his little likers. And uh, another one was Doug Spout as a, as a cardinal with a shutter mechanism and so forth. Jeff Morford as a frontiersman, you know, with his rifle and all the rest Which of it. he actually is. Mm. And um, <laughs> light meter hanging off him. And so, you know, they were an absolute wonderful uh, fun series. Um, and anyway, that all proceeded and was fine and, and, you know, kept in great contact with them and, as always, you know, wonderful close relationship. And then probably a year or two after that finished, I won a Fuji S2, sorry, S1 camera in one of the competitions. I think it was the, the Vic AIPP Awards or something like that. Yep. And, um, and I took it out to weddings. And if you imagine, and again, hi- history for young players here, 
imagine that I wanted to get a bit of variety, right? So I had the Hasselblad that I used Square and printed Square from, which was for all the formal pictures. I then had a Canon EOS that I had modified by a Camera Clinic by Laurie Rogers to shoot Square. So in other <laughs> words, there were a couple of little blades glued in the back and I used to get calls from the laboratory all the time saying, oh, we think your flash photography is <laughs> out of whack. You know, like, anyway, of course, they, you know, good on them for telling me. Um, but that basically allowed me to use different lenses and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, for the pictures that I knew were going to end up as five by fives and so forth in the album or seven by sevens. Then I had a color camera, 35 millimeter with a, um, long zoom lens on. I had a 35 millimeter black and white camera with a wide angle zoom on. I had an old Chinese seagull. Oh, yeah. twin lens camera with E6 film in that I cross-processed <laughs> only. And the camera would only work if you tilted it on a camera, on an angle, because that was fashionable at the time. That's cool. And then I had a last camera, which I shot detail miniatures on, that only had a 50mm 1.4 lens on and only used it at 1.4 because I was doing pages of detail miniatures. The whole lot went in a friggin' shopping trolley that my poor assistant used to push around. <laughs> You know, I mean, literally, we looked like a modern-day version of Sancho Panza and... Uh, <laughs> tilting at the windmills. Um, tilting at windmills, you know, So was that, was that in the mid-90s, uh, 2000s, was it? Early 2000s? Yeah, very, you know, late late 90s and then early 2000s. So if you imagine, I, I took the Fuji out and, and used that just to shoot detail miniatures. And at the time, you know, let's put it into perspective, the voices were saying things like, oh, digital will never replace film. You know, it's just not the quality. The same you know? voices. I thought, yeah. I thought to myself, you know, um, you and I both, Paul, have had this experience where being on the receiving end of the laboratory, um, as, as I was many for many years um, in the past, you'd get people who would who would do the most unutterable bullshit to bits of film and still think that they were going to get a magnificent result out of it. You know, it's like the photographers who went on the, the Leica M6 bandwagon with the F, F95 knocked lens and so forth. There's only two photographers I knew of that could get them in focus. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> David Oliver was one of them, you know. Yeah, yeah. And the rest of them used to wank off about the Sumicron 35mm 1.4, and I thought, the picture's not even in focus, for God's sake. <laughs> You know, get your hand off it, Daryl. You know. <laughs> anyway, so so it's a very long-winded way of saying I took this camera out, and of course, again, the point I was going to make was that yes. we were used to printing on diffusion systems. If you had shot on your Hasselblad a roll of color film and a roll of black and white film, and you were printing the black and white at home, you know, in your in your um, converted bathroom or whatever, you knew that that. 10 by 10 inch print was going to look sharper than the color one for the, from the lab because that was printed through a, yeah. um, you know, an 11S printer or something like that. So we were never seeing, in a lot of cases, what the quality really could have been from color images at that particular time, unless they were being condenser printed. Yes. So anyway, the digital, I thought, was, was bloody fantastic. It was first class. We were existing in a time when... 
you know, we were used to getting it pretty close in camera as far as ex exposure goes. So it was probably five weddings before I took the leap and bought a micro drive and shot the whole wedding on on digital. On the S1. You know, maybe with a couple of rolls of film chucked in, you know, yeah, just yeah. for, you know, I mean, sure, I, my butt cheeks were clenched very tightly because there was only one card in the camera. But the point was that we made this sort of dramatic leap into digital. And, of course, companies like Kodak were, were caught very, very much off guard, very much off guard. And I remember talking to the gang uh, many years afterwards, and I said, well, how long did you think it was going to take? And they said, we thought it would take 25 years. Mm. And what took and it's five so, years, if that? Yeah, if that. And it, it was terribly, terribly sad, terribly sad. And, you know, it's um, – such a wonderful company and wonderful people and so forth and you know but fortunately you know everybody seems to have survived so that's great well it's interesting 25 um, years on and i don't think it's quite 25 but portrait sales have been through the roof the last couple of years um certainly the last three years yeah. because of people re rediscovering uh slowing down um and you know you yeah. mentioned um uh, about uh, and it's something you've spoke about many because i've been to lots of david williams seminars and you were talking about being an observer and not a photographer over the years. And mm. I think one yeah. thing that you, that digital does makes it so easy to become a, that the snapper, <laughs> that awful term, but the person who's just clicking away like crazy. And it takes away that observer thing. Whereas shooting two and a quarter square on a Hasselblad, where you know, you've got 12 pictures and you're facing down the line of this event that's about to happen. And you're afraid of blowing it so that you've got to change backs on the 12th picture. Can you talk yeah. a little about being the observer and and how maybe that works for you as a digital photographer? Please don't tell me that it's you've got it because you started with film. There's got to be more to it than no. that, you know? Because oh, no. bulk 35 no. mils, motor drives have always been there. That's right. And, you know, I think here, here's the basis to it, which is that when, when we were shooting two and a quarter square film, the mentality was that you set up in your head was each time I press the button is five bucks. So, sure, you know, if you want to take three frames of it instead of one, press the button three times. And I'm, I'm going to sidetrack ever so slightly, so make sure you bring me back on if I go on too wide a tangent. Yeah. But I remember hearing the story about Bruce Possel. Um, no, actually, Robert Gray told me this, I, I'm pretty sure. Um, was talking about working with this photographer, I think, at the age. And he was an old-school photographer, and he'd made the, the migration from Graflex to Rollerflex and now was having a Nikon shoved in his hands. Now, here was a guy that was used to going out with maybe a Graphmatic back with five pieces of film in it that, that then started going out with a roll of film with 12 shots on it and then was going out with a roll of 36 exposures. So the picture editor was starting to get real cheesed off with him and he said, look, you can go out and take more pictures. That's the whole idea of the 35 millimetre. I'll call the guy Wally. You know, go mad, Wally. Let it hang out, you know, do it. So anyway, Wally comes back after photographing this very important group photograph and hands over the film. And it's a group photograph of something like 100 people. 
you know, in multi-tiers and so forth. And they process the film and there's two frames on the film. <laughs> so the picture editor gets the Wally and says, what's the story, Wally? And, of course, it's in those days when everybody smokes and Wally sort of goes, I took the first one and the guy in the third row, fourth position in, blinked, so I took another. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, the... You know, this business about being an observer, um, my dad had a great saying, and I, and I, I hope I can attribute it to my dad. If it, if it is attributable to somebody else, my apologies. But he said 35 millimeter looks like 35 millimeter because we treat it like 35 millimeter. Hang on, I'm thinking that through. Righto. 35 millimeter looks like 35 millimeter because we treat it like 35 millimeter. In other words, if we treated it like six by seven, in other words, put the camera on a tripod, yep. carefully focused, yep. took the time to make sure all the elements were where they should be, you know, and then press the button, processed it extra carefully, you know, and that's a whole other, a whole other uh, <laughs> point of discussion. Um, you're going to get a, a markedly a markably different result. But the fact is that the 35 millimeter became the film of speed or the format of speed. We yeah. used it not on a tripod. We used it fast. We used it handheld. We used slower shutter speeds, all that sort of stuff. And so therefore a certain kind of quality came with it. You know, when we picked up a larger format camera, we instinctively slowed down because it was more unwieldy and so on and so forth. And in effect, unwittingly paid it more respect. So this comes back also to, if you look at Vivian Meyer's, um, yeah. sorry, Vivian Mayer, I'm sorry, Mayer, Mayer. Mayer, I've always called it Mayer, but it could be Mayer, you know. Right, right. Um, anyway, uh, when Toronto her collection, lady. that's right, that's exactly right. And uh, Stephen Bulger, I'll put a plug in for that, Stephen Bulger Gallery. Um, has, I believe, control of the negatives now. And they are a fantastic gallery, and I would urge anybody who comes to Toronto, uh, make the time to visit Stephen Bulger, B-U-L-G-E-R. -E gotcha. Stephen Bulger Gallery. Fantastic. I have on my wall uh, a, a signed image of Ruth Orkin's image uh, called the, uh, the American in uh, Italy, American right. Girl in Italy. Walking cool. down the oh, street. I know the picture. Yeah, yeah. And it's actually signed by Nina Lee Craig, who up until a year ago was still alive. Wow. And uh, that was all, all done by Stephen. Fantastic. That's that shot so, of, the, of the woman and the Italian guys falling over her. Yeah, yeah. fantastic. Yeah, so it's actually literally just behind me. I can me. see it, yeah. Yeah, so um, anyway, um, we were talking about we were talking about quality. We we're talking about film. We're talking format. about observation, being an observer rather than a yeah. So or he, so here's the thing: um, photography has an eternal battle with familiarity and contempt. What I mean by that is, if you take the example of, and I will use a wedding photography example here. When we look at, as Western people, when we look at, say, an Indian wedding, we are absolutely ravished by the colour. We're intrigued to the nth degree by the ritual. And we want to know more about it. 
and there is all of these emotions coming in and so forth and it's because it's different yep if we go and see our cousin's wedding at the local catholic church we go yada 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 how soon can we get to the beer because we're familiar with the ritual, we've seen it all before. So what the challenge is, for example, to a wedding photographer is to to photograph the ritual. And I've got to give I've got to give huge credit here to a photographer who's sadly not no longer with us, who is Tony Wincup. W H I N C U P. Tony Wincup. Um, who's a mate of Mike Langford's and and mine, great character. And Tony first opened my eyes to the whole aspect about photographing a wedding. I I remember photographing weddings and hating them because I was basically doing a series of portraits. Right. I wasn't photographing the story. And Tony said, and he was an anthropologist, sorry, I'll just to, to recap that. He and his wife were both anthropologists. And he said, he photographed a wedding like an anthropologist, which means that you photograph the social ritual. You find out who the important people are. You photograph them. You photograph how the ritual proceeds. And then you photograph it in order to be able to show it to somebody who wasn't there and have them understand what happened. Right. That makes sense. Which, which in effect is one of the tenets of photojournalism one of the tenants and you know that whole scenario has become very very blurred because as far as i'm concerned photojournalism simply means telling a story with pictures it doesn't say anything about hiding behind a bush and sticking the lens through an aspidistra oh, right yeah yeah uh, it doesn't say anything about being unaware camera aware or anything that's just an invention that we've put onto it it's a bit like uh, it's a bit like the situation in America where they think Jesus looks like Kenny Loggins in a bathrobe, <laughs> right? Yes, we've made those rules. Yeah. In other words, constructs. Yeah, constructs. Now, Sebastian Salgado, for example, uh, had exactly the same mentality as W. Eugene Smith. Salgado is well documented on this. Peter Adams's book, um, which is a must-have or should be a must-have for any photographer. Um, what he talks about in there, Sebastian Salgado says, um, I admire Henri Cartier-Bresson. I'm paraphrasing here. I admire Henri Cartier-Bresson. But I will not steal from people because the people that I photograph have had everything taken from them or they're living at the very edge of poverty or something like that. What I do instead is I go in and I get to know the people and by getting to know the people, they trust me. And by trusting me, I become invisible right. and they show me everything. And the classic, the classic example of this is one of the pictures that motivated a lot of photographers to get into photography. And that's the, what I call the Minamata Pieta by W. Eugene Smith, which is the Japanese woman bathing her very deformed child. And, you know, the look of enormous love on her face as she's doing so. The scene was lit. Now, it's still a private moment. It's still, yes. you know, beautiful, beautiful observation, but it's been, you know, beautifully framed and, and created. 
in such a way. And it, as such, it still remains one of the pinnacles of, of photojournalistic photography. So this business of observation. But it's been lit. Sorry, so let's, just, have... let's just wind back. Yeah. It's been lit. Um, uh, so I know you talked about uh, on, on other channels, call them channels, whatever, mm. um, Avedon's uh, 10 by 8 inch photographs to have having a photojournalistic feel or a momentary yeah. feel, but they're completely conjured. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And so... Well, con conjured's become... <laughs> Yeah. Conjured's become uh, it's one of those words that has certain connotations. Yeah, sorry, because like, that means that means fake news. Yeah. In you know, it's not. It's not. It's yeah. If we if we choose to, yeah, yeah, orchestrated. Um, would that be a better orchestrated? Term? Yeah, and the thing is, is that you know, I think there's a lot of people who who will say things like that, and that the same token profess to love film. And yet every single second of a film has been specifically created. Yes. Now, you know, when it comes down to um, this business of, of storytelling and, and, you know, familiarity and contempt and so forth, imagine, imagine, and this is something that I was teaching photographers when I was talking to them about detail miniatures, which is if, if for example, we go to the beach – Let's say you and I go to the beach. Um, how, or you and Kate go to the beach, for example. How do you photograph to show what that experience was like? You have to show, for example, what kind of day it was. So you could photograph the sky, yes, or you could photograph light glinting off the water. How would you show the temperature? You could show it by bare feet digging into the sand. How would you show whether it was windy or not? Simply by tendrils of hair blowing across a, a face, you know, photographed perhaps from behind, you know, so you don't necessarily need to see the person's face because a face dominates as opposed to a storytelling element. Yep. So there's, you know, three pictures to describe something to do with the beach, right? How do you describe, um, for example, an aspect of, of what was there you would photograph maybe a seashell in somebody's hand with water running through the fingers to show that you just picked it up you know that kind of thing these are devices that have been used in filmmaking since the year dot and we're given them all the time and yet we don't translate them into photography now I'm going to circle back to what I what I, I hope was your original question, which is, as you may know, my my ex-wife of many years, Lily Gao, um, in Australia, was originally from Beijing in China, and she was a photographer there with the Nationality Palace, and she used to go with a team of people, and they would do videos and stills and so forth. And they would photograph at one stage, they were photographing musical instruments and so forth of all of these various different minority groups. And one of the groups that they went to visit, and I hope I'm right in saying this, was called the uh, Yeet people, who are one of the groups that live near the border with Vietnam. And um, there's just an absolute myriad of, of groups of people that live there. And this is a feminist society. And it's very interesting in that uh, women can choose to have as many husbands as they want. Uh, the marriage situation is, is quite simple or it can be quite complex, whatever you like. And 
the village as a totem, what we understand, for example, in Canada as a totem, um, is a tree which represents the man and the vine growing around it which represents the woman. Now, just in terms of symbolism, that's a very interesting scenario for what we're used to seeing on yeah. weddings. Is there's usually the guy that's the rigid one, no pun intended, yep. and the woman is usually fluid. Yep. In other words, or we're trying to you know pose in that way. Uh, certainly, we spend an inordinate amount of time trying to get the guy to loosen up. Usually, yep. so that's one aspect. Now, the other aspect was that in this particular uh, group of people. They came across one lady who was about 80 years old at the time, and she had her the story of her wedding woven into a dress, like a wraparound dress. And it's it's these basic sort of stick figure, you know, kinds of things. And there's a very interesting um, little sort of dance they have, which I, I'm trying to think about how I would describe that. Um, at a certain season, what happens is the boys all line up in the forest and the girls all line up in another part of the forest and they walk towards each other, sort of doing this kind of stomping kind of movement, you know, and raising their hands up as they're doing that. Right. So if you imagine the border of this dress was all these people doing that. Right. And then in the middle is the, is the uh, cart progressing uh, through these people. It's got the bride in it and the groom in it. And you can tell it's the groom because he's got a little winky and all that sort of stuff all woven in <laughs> and so forth. And then it gets to the actual um, the actual party and you see the same figures are all sort of in awkward shapes. It's because they really – they brew their own house wine, <laughs> rice wine, <laughs> and you get do. pissed as newts and fall over. <laughs> so this group is a shamanistic society. So keep in mind the females come first. There are spirits in everything, mm -hmm. and there are these rituals which are all about the girl getting the boy. For example, and just to add one thing onto that, when the girl reaches about 15, her dad builds her a little hut, just big enough for a bed. And the whole idea is that she's supposed to go down to the local market and bring home anybody she wants and bonk, bonk their brains out. And if they get on really well, she'll they'll stay and you know so on. So, okay. We have the story of that woman's wedding on a on a piece of fabric, yeah. and it requires interpretation. Yes. Once it's been interpreted, we can then understand how the ritual works, but we need quite a bit of input in to get it. So imagine conversely, is we take something that we're all familiar with, and I'm talking here about a wedding album that would have been typical, say, two decades ago where you open it up and the first page is bridesmaids and they're all holding flowers and then a bride appears and she's holding flowers. So the 80 year old woman looks at the book and thinks this is a very beautiful thing. It's very lovely. It's very nicely made. This must be the festival of the flowers. Right. And then it goes through and she sees that there's a special building which has a priest. She understands about priests because they have a shaman. Yep. So he's going to perform a ceremony in front of all the villagers. She can see that because all the villagers are in this building. And as a reward, the girl, for doing a good job with the flowers, the girl gets a boy. And then they have a party and they all get drunk. 
And that is a classic example about what was wrong with the way that we used to shoot weddings. Right. In that we weren't telling the story. Yeah, we were yeah. doing and, – and still to this day, I mean, one of the things that uh, I have to tell you that incenses me, and I, and I hope I don't get too emotional talking about this, which is that um, I remember on Facebook um, – and I, I might mean another another program. I'm not quite sure yet. If it's incensing, it's probably Facebook behind it. <laughs> no, it might, it might have been one of the photographic groups. But it was a photographer who posed the question, does anybody else hate doing the family groups? I really despise them. I just brush them off and get on with the real photography. And I looked at this guy's website, and one of the pictures was a bride and groom in the middle of a wheat field on a red couch. And I thought, seriously, what the fuck has that got to do with a wedding? That's about a photographer taking pictures to impress other photographers. Interesting. That's got absolutely nothing to do with photographing a wedding. Interesting. And as for, as for the groups, they're the most important part of the day because here's the thing. We forget one thing about a wedding. What is a wedding? A wedding is the coming together of two people to create a new family. Where did that family come from? Right Now, one of the blessings that I had coming to Toronto um, was uh, I was immediately, I was working with this friend of mine, um, immediately we were working in very, very lovely high-end Jewish weddings in Toronto. And there's more than one occasion when we've been doing this family group where I'll notice that the Bubi and the Zaidi, the grandma and the grandpa, who are being, you know, very lovingly brought into the group, and we're doing this lovely sit-stand lean Vanity Fair style group. And why are they hard to get into the group? Because they're looking at everybody else in the group with such utter joy and as they sit down or as they, you know, stand up and put a hand on somebody's shoulder, on more than one occasion I've noticed the tattoos. And I remember saying to one of the boobies at one stage, you know, um, just something really simple like, isn't it great being surrounded by your family? And she said, they didn't beat us. This is what we made. So how the hell can you say that a family group is not important? Yeah. Hey, can, can I stop you on that and ask you a question? I'm wondering whether we're at a time when culturally the – I mean, you've described and you've moved through a, a very uh, – excuse me, I don't mean conservative in a bad way, but a very traditional conservative idea of what weddings are. I'm wondering whether we're at a time of pivot for what a wedding means these days. And it's been made even harder when there's restrictions on gatherings this year and it's maybe brought it to a bit of a head. But I've heard so often recently that a wedding isn't about what the family wants and what the people around us want. It's it's about what the couple wants and and about their union and not so much. And, and actually, the amount of shitty families out there that people don't really want to actually involve the <laughs> higher generations for... All sorts of reasons. I'm wondering whether yeah, culturally yeah. we're seeing a pivot point. Are you, are you feeling that possibly too? I, I'm really glad you brought that up because I think that, you know, certainly what I've been saying sounds like I'm only coming at this from one angle. But the fact of the matter is, is if you, you don't shoot one wedding, you shoot three. You shoot right. one for the couple. Yep. You shoot one for the family. 
you shoot another one for the friends. You might even shoot a fourth one, which is every now and again you'll be throwing in a picture that's just just made for you. Yeah. You know, you might be doing that sort of little equivalent of of uh, you know <laughs> the couple on the red couch in the wheat field. Just don't make it dominate everything. You know. Yeah, and your job is to no, work out what you've got to shoot on the day, isn't it? As a photographer. Yeah, that's yeah. that's right. You know, and and certainly, you know, one of the things that I think is very important to mention is that. You know, like on the one hand, you've got like a, a typical, say, Toronto Jewish wedding, which is literally all about um, getting together with friends, you know, beforehand, you know, getting dressed, getting ready, all that sort of stuff. And they do it with such panache and such style. And then you've got this beautiful ceremony before the wedding called the Bedeckin, which is so romantic and so ancient. And then you've got the actual ceremony under the chuppah. And then it breaks into the most enormous party that just goes flat out, you know, all night with some very, very heartfelt speeches and so on and so forth. But, you know, so much of your formal photography or all of your formal photography has been done before the first ceremony. Mm. You know, the rest of the time you are totally in candid mode, you know, totally, totally. You know, and then again, if you're doing a cottage wedding, uh, say for your, um, your standard wasp wedding, uh, that say up at the cottage, you know, there's lots of boats involved and, and it's, it's, again, it's a different kind of party, but sure, the focus is so much on the bride and groom and the friends and the, because after all, this is again, something that used to really ship me off about other photographers. Saying, I hate it when friends take photographs. And I said, mate, they were invited. You were just hired. Yeah. 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 Hey, so, you know? so, so, okay. Mm. I'm going to stop you there and ask you another, um, uh, pointy question. Um, mm. You know, I know you've been a, a, a judge at WPPI and you've been AIPP judge. I have a real problem personally, and you've highlighted it just now. If you're judging the wedding category or a wedding category and you see one wedding picture and then David goes off on a rant about why they're on a red couch in the middle of a wheat field when it may have actually been a very important red couch and a very important wheat field to this young couple. And yeah, yet they get yeah. slammed in judging because of. I'm not saying you've oh, never yeah, done yeah. this, but no, the, you know th- they're so simple. Point. The AIPP WPPI system where you're looking at one thing and you're meant to make a call on it when there's a story in a wedding that's so much more. Like, why yeah. are we doing it this way, David? Can't we judge differently? And you know, well, yeah, you bring up an interesting point there, which is that um, I know that in WPPI. What we ended up doing was creating another category, which was mainly for the Asian market, because, as you know, incredibly talented photographers uh, in all through Asia who basically often will get 12 hours or in some cases days to shoot just the bride and groom. And they'll do the most incredible level of high production and so forth. And it's not wedding day photography. And you're quite right. The thing is that if if a photographer is submitted, bride and groom sitting on a red couch, middle of a wheat field, and if I cannot sit to that image and give it complete disrespect and no prejudice, I shouldn't be sitting on the panel. I should simply be excusing myself with no fuss or bother, you know, not not standing up and saying, I can't possibly judge this, and storming off. You know, just just quietly moving away. And, I mean, I've done this many times before. I mean, I remember in the States looking at a photograph once, which was this little cutesy pie photograph of a probably a two-year-old toddler 
with the baseball cap on backwards and the false wall and so on and so forth with a spray can. And I fucking hate graffiti, you know, little shit, you know. So, you know, I just excuse myself, you know, and uh, because I want whoever made that picture to get input from a judge who's not prejudiced. And I will literally, I will literally slice the privates off any judge that's on a panel of mine who sits and takes their prejudices to a picture. They will never vote on a panel with me ever again. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the thing is, here's, here's the thing with judging. Um, we, we rely on volunteers. We rely on volunteers. We basically say, well, you've got to be at least a certain level to judge, which is on the surface pretty straightforward you think to yourself that you know somebody who's an associate or a master or something you know should be okay but the fact of the matter is a lot of people can't express themselves there's also a many cases certainly more so in the past of where master photographers have become very embittered by how long it took them to achieve their masters and they're determined to make it tough for everybody else and you know the the, the whole judging thing I believe needs a lot of reform. Now, one of the things that judges need to understand is that they have to leave their ego at the door and they have to bring their knowledge to an image and not their prejudices. And above all, they have to be willing to be instructed. And this is where the whole, the whole um, to me, huge hole in the whole process is, which is that in Australia and New Zealand, we have inactive panel chairs. The panel chairs are basically there to say next print, please, or to announce a score or to call on somebody to speak. And it's so ritualized and it's like you only ask this person to speak, you only ask that person to speak or you wait until somebody puts their hand up. So in I'd, I'd observed issues with this for years and one of the things that really got me was I remember one of my images being judged and I'd been doing really well. I'd got like a couple of gold distinctions, a gold, and it was a series of images. And then there was a judge's change and it was all portraiture. And the person who came on was the only person that could be found. And they were a commercial photographer. And they looked at the image and said, yeah, oh, yeah, 75 and they were queried on it and they said, well, yeah, I just, I just don't like it. And that was it. I don't like it. Nobody gives a shit whether you like it or not. It's if you have, if there are technical issues with it, spell them out. You know, if there are positives with it, spell it out. But your prejudices have no place on a judging panel. Absolutely not ever. So imagine that 2004, I think it was, uh, Bill Herder from WPPI, who is a fantastic character, unfortunately, again, not with us anymore. Bill approached me and he said, you know, I really like some of the ideas that you've been talking to us about with judging. Would you like to run a panel? And that panel was the premier category for first time entrants. And I said, I would love to providing you allow me to run it the way that I want, which will be that there is an active panel chair. In other words, I need to be able to step in if people are going through the 10 o'clocks. What are the 10 o'clocks? 
It's when everybody's marking really high because they're all full of beans. What are the two o'clocks? It's when everybody's full of lunch and they've slowed down and they're giving everything 78. In other words, they're not putting the energy into it. I said, and I also want to get rid of this whole business of, of who speaks when and what because I don't want people hiding in the panel. There's, I've been on panels before where four of the judges are just hiding there. They're just doing safe scores so that they won't be called on. I said, I want my judges to think that at any time they can be called on to comment on a photograph. So they better have a logical, sensible response, which is based on something positive in the image, what they may find um, not so positive about the image, and how given the image as it is, not in Mickey Mouse land, not if, you know, I had a million other lights, what they could potentially do that might improve it. So that it's an educational process for the entrant. Because if you're sitting there in the audience, and I think we've all been there, and your print comes up, and there's absolute silence, and the panel chair says, Print score 79. Next print, please. Why the hell would you ever enter again? You've learnt nothing. So you think, You've been you given think the nothing. judging's are, are primarily an education process? Um, I believe they should be. Um, I mean, uh, uh, other than well, that, I don't see what the point of it is. You know, other than well, sport. Me, it's good sport yeah. like playing a nice game of cricket. People take that stuff very, very seriously, but... yeah. Like, is there more to it than that, do you think? Well, I think there, I think there is. I mean, let, let me give you this example, which is I remember judging at WPPI uh, when there was probably 30 people in the room. And then when we introduced this educational judging, and when – I just got to elaborate on this a, a slight amount. Imagine that, you know, the scores have come in. And I've, I've got a mixed panel of people because we're dealing with a mixed category that's all mixed in together, but it's all first-time entrants. And so I've got a judge that's, for example, a traditional portrait judge or a wedding portrait wedding judge. I've got a photojournalist on there. I've got a guy who's an expert printmaker. I've got a wild card. And I've got somebody who I interviewed at breakfast who's a really good photographer and who's really capable of expressing themselves, mm -hmm. right? So we've sat down and the image comes around and the image is a traditional wedding and portrait image that involves, you know, posing, lighting, da-da-da. Why am I going to ask the photojournalistic judge for a comment? He's not going They're, to do it. No, he probably can, but I'm more interested in yes. in using the skills of the judge that I have in front of me. Yeah. You know, so what I might say is, and here's how it used to work: is that my in that particular example, my traditional judge might say, "Well, uh, you know, the posing's been handled well, da da da. The lighting's very good. You know, that's why I've scored it. You know, 81." And and I might say, "Well, could I have a comment from?" you know, George, my photojournalistic judge, you know, kind of thing. Now, he knows that I'm not wanting a shit fight about what genre anybody is working in. Can he bring anything of value? So George comes in with probably the most valuable comment, which is, that, is this, which is that 
there's been such a fantastic use of lighting, excellent posing and so forth. But unfortunately, the expression is not there. The subject isn't alive in the eyes. and It needed that last little bit of input from the photographer to bring out that sense of life. Yeah. You know, suddenly you've got to educate. Oh, right. So I've got to, my posing's great. My lighting's good. But I've got to improve my communication to enliven people. So what we went from was 30 people to a room where it was standing room only yeah. all day for two days. So how do you get through everyone who might want to enter in that environment? I mean, oh, that's well, the thing because it's, it's, it's such labor yeah. seeing these images and giving each one yeah. the attention that it needs to give the really good feedback on. Well, that's the whole point. It has to be concise. It has to be quick, you know, and, and again, you know, my, my judges, uh, one of the things that we do in the training is rather than teach them protocols and so on and so forth, I'll say to them, well, okay, this is how you write down a brief description about what you want to say in a series of key words so that if you are called on to speak, you have it right there in front of you. And so it means that the response from somebody, you know, can be good, quick, precise, helpful, and you're on to the next image, you know. You, you can get into difficulties, though. I mean, I remember one year um, – we took on the engagement section, like we'd done the, the premiere first time entrance and we were given the, um, the uh, engagement. So if you imagine that a year before or two years before, somebody had won a pretty decent award with a photograph of a couple kissing in a graffiti laden alleyway. So the category that we were gonna judge was I think 135 entries. The first 65 of those images were a couple kissing in a graffiti-laden alleyway. And the only thing that changed was the actual people. And I, I'm deadly serious about no, this. No, no, I'm and not that, surprised at that at all. And that was really, really hard because I, I literally had to get the panel to, you know, stand up, you know, face the audience, you know, do anything they could to be distracted. And that was the other thing that, that we introduced is that, or that I introduced in, in the panel I was working with, which is that as the judges were deliberating, I knew they were doing their math. They were, they were head down, they were punching numbers in, they knew what they wanted to say. And I would be telling the audience what was going on. Like, for example, I'd be saying, okay, so judge number one has given this a 95. Judge number three has given this a 68. This is what we call technically a shit fight. Mm. But does it mean that the judge on 68 is an idiot and that the person on 95 is God? No, it doesn't. It means each of them has an opinion which they're now going to express, you know, this kind of thing, so that yeah. making the, the audience understand what was going on. So it wasn't a single source of feedback. It was multiple sources of feedback that said that the judging became more education-worthy than the entire conference. Interesting, interesting. Um, so, um, so we're getting we're getting close to our hour together. Uh, I did want a slight slight tack change and ask you what I mean. It may be related to WPPI and your work as judging and judges training, but tell me a little about what you're doing. I've noticed uh, headshot portraits. I've noticed um, small small room portraiture, you know, like 
things where the subject is beautifully contained within the space, some stuff that's incredibly classic that you're showing on your website. Is that what, what David's heading for at the moment or, or what's, your, what's your plans? It's certainly what David likes to do. Um, <laughs> yeah, David in the third person. Okay. Yes, yes. David likes to do this, darling. Yes, he likes. <laughs> he likes. He likes very much. Likes very much. So, I mean, yeah. I mean, I've I've always maintained that one of the things that's absolutely essential to maintain your creativity is you've got to do or devote some time to doing pictures that you love doing, regardless of whether you're commissioned to do it or not, because it's it's going to be the pictures that attract potentially attract the clients that you do want to work with. Um, in the last couple of years, uh, I've been trying to build up the uh, headshot portraiture, which has been been going quite well. Um, it's often difficult to get people interested in different approaches because they're often conforming to a company requirement, you know, head and shoulders, white background, bang, you know. Um, so I think there's going to have to be a change of tack post COVID. So how did it affect us in Canada? Well, basically January, February, March is always quiet. Right. So it's no doubt. Yeah, with the weather, it's it's like pretty much not not a lot goes on. Only a few absolutely fantastic Jewish weddings every now and again. And incidentally, with the, the weddings I photograph with my friend um, Story Wilkins. I, I work as her second photographer for that. She's she's great. And our styles mesh in very well together. Awesome name, by the way. Like, awesome name. Yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. Indeed. And, um, yeah, anyway, so uh, basically COVID hit and – I thought, you know, I'm getting to the stage where I don't have a brass razoo to rub together. So what I thought about was I would often go to business meetings uh, that were held down at um, – from business networking – that were held down at the local Longo supermarket, which are is a chain that's here in, in Ontario. And it's a sort of like an upmarket Safeways. It's an old uh, Italian family-run company – with really good management and, and really good staff. It's one of those supermarkets you walk into and most of the people are smiling. Oh, yeah. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> As opposed to, I really hate this job. It's like so beneath me. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so it's not like that at all. Pride and, in there. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, also being Canadian helps because <laughs> Canadians, just in case you were wondering, they're like, they're like Australians, only they have far better manners. You know, <laughs> it's just like. <laughs> Canadians don't look at you and go, g'day, dickhead. You know, sort of go, oh, hi, how are you? you know, I'm generally interested in knowing about more about you, you know. Yeah. And um, so uh, I actually got a job there and basically I had a choice at the time, which was I could get a government handout, which is called a CERB, I think, C-E-R-B. And it was going to be about the same amount of money as what I would get working at the supermarket, sort of pushing trolleys and polishing door handles and at the time dealing with people who didn't want to wear masks. Ugh. And I thought, shit, I'm up for a fight. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> Go Aussie. <laughs> Aussie, yeah, I'll fucking get him, kick him in the nuts. They said, no, 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 you're not allowed to do that. You've got to be <laughs> nice to them. You know? No, it wasn't quite like that at all. It was extremely stressful, uh, extremely stressful until the um, government – uh, bought in a blanket response, which is no masks are compulsory everywhere. We still see um, situations here of 
you know, the local strip shopping, for example, will have people everywhere, no masks, particularly the young kids and so forth. And um, I'm just amazed. I mean, I've had a friend of mine in the States whose husband died from it. And it's a very, very real scenario. And um, there are some serious numbers here too. But the point is we're not being real idiots about it. There are a few stupid things going on. Yeah. But um, – but most people are very, very respectful of the masks. You'll only get the occasional conspiracy theorist, you know, who sort of comes up to you and go, yeah, well, like, it's all the government plot to control us, you know, or some shit like we that. We have them you know? here too, so, you know, we're not immune. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, as I said, most Canadians are pretty sensible about it. So what do I think is going to happen? Um, what happened was that a lot of people started doing porch portraits yeah, yeah. i don't know if they're doing the same thing they there. are they're pretty cool actually they're very cool and you know that what happened is that it meant that the portrait session was shorter yeah it also meant meant that the price associated with it was also smaller and i think it's going to be very very hard to go back to even if it's possible to go back to pre-covid prices interesting Right. As far as that goes, because I don't think you're going to be able to say, well, nobody's dying anymore. So now our prices are double what they used to be. <laughs> you know, I don't think that's going to work very well. Um, I think weddings will be once they get back on deck, I think they will. I'm going to say bounce back, but I think they will sort of creak back. Right. Um, yeah, that's going to take a while because a lot of people in the wedding industry have been affected. Yeah. But, you know, this is one thing that I'll say is that that I've learned from working in the supermarket situation is that the people I'm working with who are real good, solid, intelligent people are working jobs like cash registers or stacking fruit or working in the meat department or whatever for the better part of sort of two grand or less per month. Right. And they do that regardless of whether it's COVID or not. Yeah. Right, and that's how they live. Yeah, yeah. Now, you know, if you're getting a, a remotely acceptable apartment in Toronto, that'll cost you about fifteen hundred to sixteen hundred. Yeah, nothing left. It's nothing left. Yeah. So the point being is that we're running around saying, "Oh, my photographic business has been affected," and you know, I just want to be able to go out and see people again. Well, you can't because you'll fucking die. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, that's why you're yeah. being put inside so you don't infect people and kill them. Yeah. You know, it's just like, it, it's so dumb to me. It's so selfish that people are whinging like this. I mean, sure, it's uncomfortable. We hate wearing masks, you know. Um, you know, the number of people who sort of say, well, you know, I can't breathe. Uh-huh. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you can. What are the surgeons working eight-hour yeah, operations? You, you just don't want to. You're yeah, just yeah. being a whiny little bitch, you know. Yeah, yeah. Stop it, you know. Anyway, the point is it's a tough time and we've got to get through it. And the only way we're going to get through it is by behaving ourselves, wearing masks, social distancing properly. You can imagine, you know, it's like I think I wrote to you the other day. If this was affecting teenagers, do you think there'd be half this bullshit? That's right. (laughs) Our whole houses would be wrapped in glad wrap with little breathing holes in it. Nobody would be going anywhere and we'd be doing it willfully. But for some reason, we don't care if grandma drops off the twig, you know, because she's going to go anyway. Yeah, that's no, come on. It's, it's awful. Have you been able to shoot, David? Uh, not much. I did my first portrait 
um, first portrait last weekend, I think. Wow. In, you know, in all that time. Wow. So, you know, I'm glad I wasn't, uh, glad I wasn't waiting for that. Yeah. You know, and on the other hand, you know, my, my friend Story Wilkins, she's been, you know, ham- going hammer and tongs on the porch portraits and, you know, um, making, a, making a living, yeah, on that. Yeah, for sure. Good on her. It's required a lot of effort in terms of um, getting all the SEO on the on the website, and so oh, forth, working properly. Spinning that, yeah, of course. Well, I, I did. I did like I've, you've redone your website. Is that did you do it this year? Was that um, something? Because it looked different from when I last time I I had a look. It's it's very nice. It's very elegant. Well done. Oh, thanks, mate. It's it's um it's one of those sort of works in progress that I have a little bite at every now and again, and it's too hard. It's like I go all sort of. Um, What's the word? I go all sort of. Uh, what's the opposite to digital? I go all analog and say oh, I can't work out what that button means. Yeah, like, I, know, I know. It's hard looking yeah. at your own work and your own self and trying to imagine you are a fresh set of eyes to it. But I'd encourage you to get those masterworks, the portrait stuff up there. Um, I'd love the viewers or listeners of this thing oh, to to be able to pop over there because they they were a a, a moment in time and the people that feature are. Are around and they're, they're probably some of the best uh, interpretations of those characters. I mean, if you know them, it helps a lot too. But I think there's a, a lot to be said for tackling uh, a modern idea with an old view of things and looking at how Rembrandt lit, looking at, at you know, Van Dyck and uh, Vermeer and looking at the way. That, and I think that's something that I've always admired by, by you because you're so well read with, with art and and study and observation that you then bring that to your work and it's exquisite so oh thanks mate thanks. i mean that's a, an interesting point actually um on the on the aspect of um on the aspect of art influences uh, again a, a little a little anecdote that's worth sharing which is that a friend of mine is a uh, lecturer uh, he's a very accomplished wedding and portrait photographer but he also teaches now at, at one of the colleges and we were talking about um this aspect of of Richard Avedon and Irving Penn you know to take two two names and about their differences and their approaches and so on and so forth and he said interestingly enough because I'd passed on some books to him for the students and he said interestingly enough I gave them an assignment on researching Richard Avedon. And what came back was the exact three same pictures. And when you think of the sort of oeuvre of, of work that, that Avedon has, you think, why the same pictures? And he says, because that's exactly what came up when you Googled Richard Avedon. In other words, none of them went deeper into it. Yeah. None of them bothered to study. And, and it's very interesting that a lot of photographers are basically skipping across the top of of the um, research, and a lot of them are not doing any research at all. They're only looking at photographs of, and I'll use the example of weddings again. They're only looking at other wedding photographers. They're not looking at fashion photography. They're not looking at graphic design, um, and they should be. And you know, probably one of the the best. The best things that I could ever sort of say to anybody who's who's looking for a different direction in photography is stop worrying about what the guy down the street is doing. Mm. Um, 
you know, immerse yourself in these kinds of things. And and what I've tried to do with my little series of, of little mini three-minute things, my dim sum, as I like to call them, is these little tastes to sort of get people interested in, in looking at paintings. Because what happens is that whenever you get involved in anything art-based, some wanker like me says, oh, you should study art. And one guy I remember said to me at one stage, yeah, great, Williams, what should I study? And I thought, you're dead right, mate. Where, Where should you start? you start? Where do you start? You know, like, well, you know, and that's why I've started to create a few little examples to get people interested in the stories behind them because anecdotes often teach you more than just leafing through books. And, you know, my one of my favourite Avedon pictures that I think we spoke about before is the shot um, which you can Google, which is called, uh, I think, Backstage at the Folie Bergère. Yeah, yeah. And it's from memory, 1950, I want to say 56, 57. And it's a woman in an evening dress, paused, basically looking ahead kind of thing, looking for something or somebody. And behind her is a guy in a beautiful tuxedo, with the Kerry Grant glasses off, you know, in his hand. And he's looking at a woman who is a dancer at the Folie Bergère, who's topless, climbing up a ladder. She's looking back at him and they're sharing a moment as, as if they totally know each other in the knowing sense. Yes. <laughs> right? And then there's another person in the in another side of, of the man who's basically looking at people in this very naturalistic way as if to say, oh, people coming, why are people coming through here, right? And when you look at it, it's just a wonderfully immediate picture. And yet this whole thing was done on a 10 by 8 inch view camera. And what you realize is that the actual skill in the photograph was A, the storytelling, yeah. and B, Avedon's sheer energy in bringing out those responses. He And I've read the story about it. He would literally tell everybody exactly what was happening. He would create this little mini story yeah, yeah. as to what was happening within this photograph before he'd actually taken it. Yeah. It's and a beautiful image. And your yeah. analysis of it in that little video is is on mm. point. I um, I think this is you're on the right thing here. I, I think it's very helpful to photographers to see that. And I'd encourage you to maybe get it onto YouTube so it just doesn't get lost in the Facebook world. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like all these things. I'd love to monetize it and actually you know, make some coin from it. But <laughs> anyway, but the, um, the other thing that, you know, just a last little thing on this subject is that when I used to do my three-day seminars, the Almost Alone with David Williams seminars, we used to watch the French film Amélie yes. on day two. Yeah, yeah. And the reason we did that was very, very simple is that Junet, the director, tells stories. Yes. So what he would do is he'd introduce you to a subject and he'd say, this person likes this, 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 and this. They don't like this, 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 and this. And they would show you pictures for every single one of those likes or dislikes or habit traits or whatever. And you would be introduced to different scenes. This is basically almost like this is what's going to happen now, or this is this person is now moving that way or doing this. And just as a piece of um, of movie making, as an education piece for for still photographers, 
it's absolutely important that every photographer looks at that film at least once, preferably twice, preferably more. That's a killer. That's killer. Thank Mm. you for that recommendation. Well, look, we're gonna we're gonna say goodnight because you would be facing your evening, um, and you would be facing your cocktails, the martini time, no doubt, in that swank Toronto. As a as a non drinker, yeah. (laughs) So. Yeah, that's why I'm not allowed to come to Adelaide anymore because I don't drink <laughs> not anymore. A drink. Yeah. yeah, the keepers people ban people coming here for. Yeah, yeah. No, well, um, yeah, um, mate, it's been great, and as you know, I can talk under wet cement, so it's probably good to pull the plug. Oh, it's lovely, David. I, I we must do it again, and um, perhaps we should um, line it up in, in six months' time and actually pick on some art to talk about. That would be great. Sport. Welcome back, listeners. How about that bit of David action there, Kate? Bit of David action. Yeah, wasn't that lovely? <laughs> it was lovely. Great interview. You yep. did well. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. So what have you been busy doing oh, this, Kate? I've been working my ass off this week. We've been doing a whole lot of fancy new products that are coming. Fancy new products, do you fancy say? New pro- <laughs> fancy new products. I've been driving. Tell us about those fancy new products. <laughs> Wait, you, that's Fuck fabulous, you. Janine. No, because otherwise people will be like, how much? When can I order? And is it in rows? And I can't do any of that until all those questions can be answered. Oh. But I'm developing a whole bunch of new products for the season that cometh. The Whether Christmas we like it season. or not, unless the world blows up on November the 2nd. Which it won't. When the bloviating Cheeto head wins again. Bloviating? Yeah, bloviating. Oh, I like that. That's a word. That's a good Look word. It up. Um, yeah, so we're going to have some fun things on uh, the way for Christmassy Christmasness. Mm. You know what I did uh, last, was it last weekend or weekend before? Do you know what's been really funny? Just we skipped a week. I've been doing these. One of the products has been a gift card. Yeah. And what's I've, a gift card? You know, like Merry fucking Christmas card. Right. And um, greetings card. I think. Greetings. The card of the greeting. Yes. And I've had to work out all these different ways of expressing, like Happy New Year, Happy Holidays, Happy Christmas, without saying any of that. And it's been really, really fun and really hard and also trying to get stuff that's a bit like geez that was uh that's a bit of a shit year <laughs> like, <laughs> I kind of, Every, I'm trying yeah, everyone to, wants to do that that's right i'm trying to find a card that has a whiff of that so it's been really interesting tricky yeah it's been surprisingly emotional like thinking that this year will actually at some point be over oh yeah but we thought that about 2019 yeah, and then 2020 started and there was fires and now what so don't don't think that way look right now where are you now oh my god the bloody <laughs> the therapy's oozing out think about where Butter you are now in the house you <laughs> <Butter>? <laughs> grab the Buddha Tilly <laughs> tell me hello you little boy so I just want to tell you that um, yes, the Shimmer God. Photographic Festival is still rolling, and it was absolutely fabulous. Still we had our shimmering. first, we had our first festival of anythingness here in South Australia of the festival state. That's working in the festival state. And None of you bastards get to do festivals. No, only us. Get in your car, go down to McLaren Vale if you're in South Australia, and and Port Nolunga and all the all the Onkaparinga City Onka Council Paringa. area, mm-hmm. and check out the fabulous festival of photography with a P. The last one was. Um, and, uh, yeah, we did a, a day of artist talks and we did where interviewed people and had them open their exhibitions and blah, 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 blah. And there's some blah, wonderful blah, blah, stuff. Blah, blah, blah. And I hope to be bringing you some interviews of some of the people who have featured Ew. in the festival. Oh, featured yes. photographers in the photographic 
Festival. Yes, there's quite a few oh, in yes. there. So you ready for your moment of colour? Well, it's not going to be RGB. No, it won't be RBG. Yeah. It's going to be... What is it going to be, dickhead? You're the one in charge. Yeah, I'm just sitting here waiting for you to tell me. It's called rendering intent. Oh, fuck me. Okay. Are you ready for this? Yeah, I'm getting my pillow all ready for my snooze. Snooze <laughs> time, coming up. Well, how often as a graphic designer, Kate, have you been asked to st- or been told that this colour must make it through to the annual report or this is the Coca-Cola colour, it's got to be... Oh, the Pantone of the logo. Well, not so much the Pantone, but the co- this colour is critical. I need the bridesmaid's dress. This is the, It's got to be the colour. Yeah. There's not a lot of ombudsmans that really give two shits about colour. So the people you have worked for. Okay, yeah. so I should, probably shouldn't have asked you no. that. Do you, I would have said, do you think logo colour is an important thing to some clients? Yes. Right. That's all <laughs> I would just say. <laughs> Don't make up some big crappy story make me look stupid. Sorry, darling. That's right. Um, so quite, quite often we get asked that this colour must be accurate through it. But the trouble is in making that colour accurate, you screw every other colour in the picture up. And people don't seem to understand this. This is why doing a grey balance and a grey card doesn't always solve the problem to make the picture look nice because you yeah. get that one colour right and everything else doesn't fall into place. Yeah. The reason of that is because everything that we use to represent colour, whether it be a digital camera or your monitor, your display or your printer, they all render colour differently. So to get that colour accurate across all those devices is next to impossible. impossible. But one of the tricks we use, and just to prove it doesn't actually work very well, is, is a thing called rendering intent. And there's two main ones. Well, there's three ones we, we use mostly. Perceptual is the first one, and it's about moving one colour from one device to another device. And perceptual is about the colours around it fitting with it. That they belong together. That it looks so that natural. Even though the dress is not white, it looks white because of everything in the Every scene. environment around it, yeah. Like classic but bright under a tree. Yeah. Right. That's not maybe not the best um white's probably not the best colour, but you imagine um a particular red who does bridesmaid's dresses in red, but <sighs> let's say a particularly strong colour of a bridesmaid's dress. Uh, what about the Oompa Loompa bridesmaids? The, yes, the, the spray tans. Um, but to get that to get that dress looking as the swatch of material, we we often have uh, a swatch of material come and say the bridesmaid's dresses look like that, match that. We match that, and every other color in the picture goes ro- out yeah. wrong because which is why auto color correct doesn't work. That's right. Yeah. Um, so perceptual rendering intent is a very common selection when it comes to choosing rendering intents. There's one that uh, is used for logo reproduction. Um, it's called absolute color metric, and what that means is this color must always map to this color. So whatever happens, you're always going to force this color, and that is when the colors go awry in an image. But you get the right logo from device to device. Yeah. Because really, if you calibrate and profile each device, you're sending it the color palettes, a color palette, and you're saying it's got to look like this, and you're color adjusting that device to make sure it renders that palette. So you can actually do it. You can make that logo colour, providing it's not some wacky colour that's a weird Pantone that doesn't forget fit within RGB or CMYK. Um, you know, providing it's not some wacky colour, it still can be mapped. But in the mapping of it, you kill every other colour around it. So absolute colour metric is that rendering intent which will map those logos across but smash everything else. So it almost is like 
It's all about the numbers, nothing about the look. Perceptual's all about the look. Yeah. Right in the middle there, you've got a rendering intent called um, relative color metric. And relative color metric has got a whole lot of perceptual in the middle. So in the middle by that, I mean, if you imagine a sphere, the dead center sphere is perfect neutral color, perfect gray. And as you go out to the edges of the sphere, you get all the maximum saturated wild colors right on the edge. So perceptuals in the middle, anything that's those um, soft tones, those, um, um, you know, like pastels, Yeah. what our skin is, what most of our environment is a soft color. I mean, you glance around my room here, there's no real biting strong color, is there? No. It's all this sort of – Did not you do that on purpose so you could color correct? Uh, no, I don't think so. But there's a few little objects that are a bright color, but – Nothing is is a really strong, and we're all glancing around here, like going, "Where's my fucking <laughs> colours in this room?" What a boring room! What a boring yeah. room. <laughs> yeah, um, it's quite the opposite in so, my room. So perceptual, all those colours will fall into place in that middle area in, when you're using uh, ab, uh, relative colour metric. But when you get out to the edge of the sphere where all the bright colours are, that's what you're going to be struggling with is is those bright colours. So what relative does? relative colour metric, it, it sort of maintains a perceptual look right out till you get to those extreme colours. And then it forces the colour across a bit. But in this little band, I can't even describe what the band is, but it's like that last 5%, it forces it to the maximum saturation, to the closest thing, to that colour you want it to be, to that logo or whatever it is. So it's a really clever colour space, but it has this little skin on the edge where things can really go wrong. So in using it, if you are a photographer and you're doing converting from one colour space to the next, it is going to get you those wacky colour dresses and that sort of stuff if they're actually printable. But the problem with it is you're never quite sure what's going to happen out on the edge. So we feel that your safer zone is to be working in that um, relative colour metric, which is funny enough what look makes things look most natural and even though the colors that might not match the bride's dress um it might not match it but it still looks right in the picture and when it looks right in the picture you're not standing there with a swatch of material or the dress alongside the photograph like that's crazy people do that um i shouldn't say crazy people but even then you've got one that's reflective and yeah one that's i know so so what are we like the whole thing sounds crazy oh, but the number of groom the number of photographers i've heard it's always the brides who got a blush, yeah, like yeah. a like a not a white dress, but like a just pink or yeah. just gold. Kind I need of, that dress, to be and it's color. always a fucking second wedding, and they oh, are oh my god, and they are. You should hear the poor photographers. They're like, if you can't see the blush, she's gonna kill me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's the problem is with a reflective dress, like a light color. The more light that's on it, the more white it looks. Oh, I know. And I remember one guy, one photographer whose bride wore this blush, like pinky purpley dress, and then all the family photos were under these massive trees on a green lawn. Oh no! At like fucking. So being midday. a light coloured dress is going to reflect all the colour around. Oh it. God Almighty! And yeah. so her dress was just—it was ah. Oh. So look, my, my the point of the moment of the colour is actually to say with all the science in the world, you can't get it perfect. No. You've got to relax what you have to do is, it. yeah, but you also have to work out a way to, to, uh, to explain that to the clients. 
Yeah, you have to. You have to find a way of doing it because it's it's reality. There's yeah. no other way. And, you know, people who go to trouble, they use all the science of the world to get it right and then they're foiled by something simple like the photograph was taken alongside a red wall. Yeah. So you've got red light from one side and natural light on the other side. Like, yeah, what but are you they all think, they all think that because you've got them? a big camera with a big, nice, long lens... <laughs> <laughs> the length of the lens sounding. makes it look more expensive, pro tip, for the consumers. And so the photographers, the, the non-photographer bride and groom family are like, we've got all the all the things. They can take photos of a bee's fart on Mars. Why the fuck can't, can't my get it right. bride's exactly. dress be exactly right? So, so it's about managing expectations. And yeah. um, that's where I was sort of hedging around when talking about perceptual is the industry's kind of, professionals have kind of relaxed it and going, do you just exclude everything else and have a look at the picture? Do you like the picture? <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, that's your moment of colour. Let's leave these lovely people. And it boiled down to have a look at the picture. You like the picture? Can I sell you the picture? <laughs> Correct. Correct. It's, and then it comes down to your relationship with the customer, doesn't it? That's right. We can sell anything so as long nice. as they love us. <laughs> Is that what you say? Treat them nice, baby. Treat them nice. None of that treat them mean, keep them keen stuff. That's awful. And if you're listening to us from America, vote. <laughs> vote. No one's listening to us from America because there's only like four people listening. Let's have a moment of silence for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And for all the girls that are going to be forced into being mothers, whether yes. they want it or not. You suck, America. Forced birth. Who would have thought that The Handmaiden's Tale – even though we knew that every single thing, can I just tell everyone who doesn't know, every single thing that is written in The Handmaiden's Tale has actually happened on Earth. And America is flying towards the reality of forced birth. Mm. Just saying. Anyway, <laughs> go vote. And in Australia, you're going to vote anyway. Just do it the fucking right way. Whoever's going to save the planet and everyone else can fuck right off. <laughs> Now, I'm Good off night. my high horse. That's it's it. dinner time. We're having steak. Joe is cooking steak. Oh, my God. Joe is cooking steak. Pasta and steak. Pasta, Pasta and steak. steak. Pasta, Pasta and steak. steak. Pasta and steak. <laughs> Bye. Bye.